Well, beloved, look with me um, to God's word, 1 Timothy chapter 4. And let me read for us our text for this morning, uh, verses 11 to 16. There the Apostle Paul writes, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. We've been working our way through 1 Timothy. And if you've been with us these number of weeks, you know that we are studying this book in part because coming out of the pandemic, we're wanting to remind ourselves of what it means to be a church and how the church should live together and what should be the priorities of the Christian life and the Christian community. And so we've been in this pastoral epistle written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a protege of his, uh, an apprentice of his named Timothy. Timothy is in an affluent city, in an affluent church, in a place called Ephesus. And there are a number of challenges that are going on there for Timothy. Paul has to write and tell him in verse 3 of chapter 1 that he's to command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Those same persons are uh, people who are interested in teaching the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. So Paul is like, put a stop to the false teaching. He's been warning Timothy that they live in an age and we live in an age uh, of people departing from the faith. You might have seen that in chapter 4, verse 1. People are going to leave their confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're going to turn back to the world. They're going to turn back to unbelief. They're going to be turning back, in that sense, to judgment. And so he's in this church with lots going on, from people abandoning the truth to people twisting the truth in the name of Christ. And the question that's hanging over this epistle is, well, how should the church act? And and what should Timothy do? And Paul tells us near the end of chapter three that that's why he's written this letter. He hopes to come to Timothy soon, but if he's delayed, he's writing this letter so that um, one might know how they ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which which is God's church, right? Then in chapter 3, he gives instructions about leadership, what to look for in terms of qualifications for leadership. And in chapter 4, I've been suggesting to you that what we have here is sort of the pastor's job description. So so chapter 3 is kind of what kind of person should the pastor and and the deacon and deaconess be? And chapter 4 is what kind of work are they committed to? Now, if you've ever seen a job description, I trust that many of us have, most of us have, you know that a good job description kind of has three parts to it. You'll have some general statement about the purpose of this job and maybe how it fits in the organization and things of that sort that gives you context for the job. I would suggest that's what verses one to five do for us in chapter four. It gives us the context in which Timothy is operating. People are departing the faith. They're devoting themselves to silly myths. And he's telling Timothy, no, this job is about godliness. Training yourself for godliness, right? 
Then the second part of a job description that you normally see is some statement of the qualifications for the position. You know, what, what kinds of experience must you have? What kinds of training must you have, et cetera? And that's what we get in verses 6 to 10. Right? He's telling Timothy he will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. He will be a good minister of Jesus Christ if he puts this teaching before the people, right? And if he exercises himself to godliness. And then the third part of a job description is normally the duties, right? This is what you must do. It might be a bullet point list or uh, some sort of things, but it will tell you what your responsibilities are in order to perform that job, what the baseline expectations are for actually doing your job. And that's what we have in verses 11 to 16. We got here sort of the duties that Timothy is called to perform in the midst of this confusing context with people leaving the faith and twisting the truth. And and these are duties that flow out of who he is meant to be as a person, the qualifications, the characteristics that he's supposed to have as a minister of God. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, we might divide these duties into three parts. Number one, uh, Paul speaks to Timothy's personal ministry or his personal duties. These are the things that he must do as a pastor uh, in service to the church. You'll see that in verses 11 and 12. And number two, um, we get Timothy's public ministry, his public duties. These are the things that he is responsible to do when the church assembles. You see that in verses 13 and 14. And then number three, you get his private ministry, the things that he is to make sure he's taken care of in his own person uh, in verses 15 and 16. So his public ministry, or excuse me, his, his personal ministry, his public ministry, his private ministry. Look with me again in 1 Timothy 4, 11 to 16. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So ARC, as a church, as we begin uh, and have begun to to live and serve again, sort of outside of our homes and to reassemble in public and in this sort of almost post-pandemic, we don't know what state we're in world, right? Here's what you should be expecting of your leaders, of your pastors. You should be expecting them to perform their personal ministry. Now, Timothy's personal ministry might be sort of summed up here in verses 11 and 12 with three things. It's the, um, number one, command. Number two, teach. And number three, modeling. So if Timothy is going to do the work the Lord has called him to do, there's a sense in which, number one, he's got to do it with some authority. He's got to command these things. These things are all the things that Paul has been talking about in chapter 4. And in chapter 3, where he says, the reason I'm writing this is so that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. Then in a more general sense, all the things that are in this letter. That Timothy is to teach these things and to command these things. Notice now, not sort of mealy-mouthed. Not sort of wishy-washy. 
not kind of, I really hate to tell you this, but with a certain kind of authority. He's to command. He's to finish some of his sentences, at least with exclamation marks, right? Not always with question marks and doubts and and fear of man. He's to stand flat-footed and proclaim, thus saith the Lord. Now, we want to be careful here. Timothy is not to be an autocrat. He's not a dictator. He's not commanding out of some sense of his, his own authority or a sense of controlling. We don't, in a Christian church, we don't lord it over the sheep. Paul is real clear about that. We don't lord it over the sheep. We work together with you for your joy. But part of what he has to do is to preach and teach in authority. Well, why? Think about the context again. Back in chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says that uh, I left you in Ephesus. I was going, I was going to uh, Macedonia. I left you in Ephesus so that you may what? Charge. It's the same word as command. Certain people not to teach any different doctrine. So when Timothy is confronting false teachers, he's not doing that as if, okay, we're kind of equals and we're just kind of, you know, massaging ideas together. We just, you know, you think this, I think that. Let's maybe put it together. No, he's supposed to speak up and say it with his chest. That's false. That's wrong. Don't believe that. You're not going to teach that here, right? So he is to be um, manly, if you will, bold in his proclamation of the truth. Now, we know that this, this authority that he's called to exercise is, again, not about lording over people because in chapter 1, verse 5, you remember what Paul says there? He clarifies. The aim of this charge, the aim of this command is what? Love. It's love. Now, here's something that our culture doesn't often remember, that authority and love in God's design are meant to go together. We have seen so much abuse of authority that we're rightfully suspicious of it. We've seen so much of abuse of authority in the culture and even in the church that that this, I understand why this would make some people nervous. But in God's design, authority and love are meant to go together. And we know this from the moment we're children, or we should. The most immediate authority that God puts in our lives are our parents. And our parents are meant to be people who both, yes, exercise authority, but they do so in love. That's why, again, in chapter 3, when Paul is talking about the qualifications for an elder uh, or deacon or deaconess, remember he says, manages his own household well. Now, the idea is not manager in the sort of business sense. It's nurturer. It's caregiver, right? It's love and authority being expressed um, in, in a kind of tenderness and a concern for the church. So when he says command here in the text that this is part of the pastor's job description, he doesn't mean it like an autocrat or a dictator, and he is calling us up out of this kind of fear of man, leg shaking, I don't want to offend you. He's saying, no, play the man. Command and teach. And he'll have to do this in different ways. So if you flip over to chapter 5. There in chapter 5, he's talking about caring for uh, elders, or excuse me, widows. He's talking about the responsibility of providing for our homes. Um, and there in chapter 5, too, we, we, find that, we find that word again. We find that, that word charge or command, verse 7. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. We see it again in chapter 6. So if you just flip over to chapter 6, 
when he begins to address the rich people in the church who seem to think that because they are rich, they, they should be sort of running the church. Verse 17, chapter 6, as for the rich in his present age, charge or command them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So if he's going to be an effective minister, he's going to have to speak with authority to everyone from false teachers to widows and families to the rich and the powerful. You you want that kind of prophetic ministry in a healthy church. But he's not just commanding. Notice he's also teaching. So he's not just coming with thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. Right. And again, that's not coming out of his own authority. It's authority that comes from God's word uh, and and comes through Christ. But you also want to teach. You, You want to sort of take those commands and you want to explain them. You want to sort of systematically give instruction to the people that they would know how to follow them. Right. So it's not enough to say, you know, be a godly husband. That's good to say. But in the church, where our main business is to make disciples, we must also come next to each other and teach each other how to be a godly husband, how to be a godly wife, how to be an obedient child, how to be a a chaste single person, how to work honorably in the workplace, not stealing from your employer, but working as unto the Lord, knowing that that's whom your reward comes from. Right? See, Living the Christian life is not something we know by osmosis. It's not something that gets downloaded the moment you get converted. Oh, boy, that would be nice. You come put your faith in Jesus, and they like, here, put this in your hard drive, and put that in there, that get, and then you just roll in. That'd be nice. But for God's own glory, he didn't design it that way. Right? He designed us to need each other in community. He designed his church to need teachers who would help us systematically understand how to live out the Christian faith. And that teaching is important precisely for that reason, because we're not, we're not honestly called to know a lot, right? We're not all called to be academic theologians preaching at the most prestigious seminaries, but we are called to live a lot, right? So what we do know, we have a responsibility to actually live out, right? Our life and our doctrine, as we'll see in verse 16, should should match. We should watch those. Those should should go together. And for that to happen, we need teachers in our lives, right? And we need to take the teaching of God's word, the application of it, seriously. So Paul says, now command and teach these things. Then notice what he says in the next verse, verse, um, verse 12 there. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. I love this verse. This is one of the reasons we think Timothy was probably a young man when he was in this pastorate and probably a little bit timid. We first meet Timothy over in Acts chapter 16. He has a good reputation with churches in the area, uh, and and they introduce him to the Apostle Paul, and he begins to travel with the Apostle Paul as as an apprentice and an understudy. When we meet Timothy in Acts 16, he might be a teenager. And so this is maybe some, some 10 or 15 years later, so Timothy might not quite be 30 years old at this point. 
right? And so he's in a church with people all across the age range, right? He's got some people younger than him, got some people older than him, and, and there's maybe a little bit of ageism going on in the church. So he says, let no one despise you or look down on you because you are young, right? Now, let's be honest. One of the reasons many young people don't want to come to many churches is because they're full of old people who won't let them do nothing and keep telling them that they're young and they can't do nothing and they don't know nothing, right? And then those old folks are doing the same folks who are left in the church like, I don't know why we can't get the young people to come. You keep telling them they ain't welcome. You keep looking down on them because they're young, right? And, oh, don't, don't let one of them aspire to be a leader of something. Oh, you ain't old enough for that, baby. You just sit right there till you get your AARP benefits, right? Then, then you can be a part of this thing, right? We laugh, but it's true. It's true. Now, verse 12 gives us the antidote to that. Paul says, now, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth. Now, if you're young and you're young in your thinking, I'm going to tell you what you will do. You'll read that first part, forget the second part, and then you'll start trying to get all loud, right? You, you, you'll start kicking against the older folk. You'll start rejecting their authority. You'll start rejecting their position as seniors. You'll start acting like you don't need anything from them. Remember the passage of scripture that Dietrich read in 1 Kings chapter 12. Now, the reason we read that is so we'd have an illustration of this point, right? Here's this young king who, who, who's thinking about how to rule. He actually goes to his elders, the elders who knew his father and knew how good his father's reign was. And the elders together said, listen, you know what? If you do this, right, if you say this to the people, if you treat the people this way, these people will love you and will serve you for the rest of their lives. What did he do? He went to his little friends. He went talk to his little friends, right? He rejected the counsel of the elders, and the friends were like, nah, man, you need to be tougher than your daddy, right? Your daddy, tell him your daddy's yoke, it ain't even as thick as your finger. Wait till you put your leg on, right? And so they give him foolish, youthful counsel. And he takes their counsel and rejects the counsel of the elders, and he goes out boastfully and proud, and he doesn't rule very long. He doesn't rule very long. And a lot of young people respond to their elders that way. You, you hear counsel from them. You hear it from several of them telling you, baby, this is how you do it. They've lived, beloved. They have experience. They have wisdom. They are ahead. They're further down the road than we are as young people. We are as young people. That's right. I got the mic. So, so they're further down the road. Humility and wisdom would listen. That means you have to agree with everything at every point. But humility and wisdom would listen. And if for some reason you disagreed at some point, humility and wisdom would make itself accountable to the council by going back to them and saying, you know, I don't think I agree at this point. Tell me more, or what am I missing? Right? Don't kick against the authority of elders that God puts in, in your place. Instead, notice what verse 12 says here. Paul says, now, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, so don't, don't give in to that. Don't, don't let them sort of hold it over you that way. Instead, 
model, set a model, set the believers an example. And he could have said many other things, but he gives us five areas here in speech and in conduct. That's the outward example, but then also in love, in faith, in purity, right? So he says, you want to live the kind of Christian life that matches the kind of Christian teaching that you do. And you want to live it with the kind of consistency that it's obvious to others and anybody who's tempted to look down on you, they at least got to excel your example. Right. Can't be based on age now. It's got to be based on character. Right. So, young Timothy, if you're going to pastor the church now, pastor the church in such a way that your life is an example for all of the believers, young and old, male and female. It's an example in how you speak, that your words are seasoned with grace, that they're true and loving. And it's an example in conduct, your, your behavior, how you, how, you, how you act toward others, how you treat others, how you live your life in the, in the sort of public eye, that when they look at your behavior, they cannot impeach you. They cannot blame you. you, you again, chapter 3, verse 1, above reproach, right? Live that way. And not only in speech and in conduct, but now also in these internal things as well, that, that your life should be exemplary in terms of love terms of your affection and your commitment to people that gets seen again in how you treat people, right? You are, as a pastor, meant to be an example of love, and, and not only of love, but of faith, right? So be an example of fighting against unbelief, be an example of fighting against doubt, be an example of fighting against the kinds of negative mindsets that activists, God is not real and God is not working. You be that person who believes in God, who has, as we said a couple of verses earlier, set your hope on the living God, right? You be an example of what it means to keep pressing when everything around you says, stop. Be an example of keep hoping in God, when everything around you is whispering, you don't need to trust God. God's not going to come through. Be an example of faith, of love and faith and purity, right? So you should, from the inside out, be an example of what it means to be holy, what it means to be good, what it means to have your heart fixed on the, on the righteousness of God and to be pursuing that righteousness um, in personal ways, in private ways, when nobody's looking at you, you know that God is looking at you. And then in public ways, he will say in just a few verses later, chapter five, for example, he tells Timothy um, with regard to the uh, younger women in verse two, old, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Same word there. So you, you, live, you live a life that's free from the public scandal of sexual immorality, from the public scandal of impurity with, with, with women in the church and uh, impurity in any way before God's people. Right? That's Timothy's job description. Command, teach, model. That's his personal responsibility. These are things he has to take charge of in his ministry to the congregation. Right? Now, if that's his job, what's your job as a congregation? Simple, isn't it? Be willing to be commanded. Be willing to be taught. Be willing to follow the leader's examples as they follow Christ, right? 
So all of this implies that there is a body of people out there called Christians who are devoted to Christ and receive the leadership that Christ places in their lives. So long as the leadership is godly and not calling you into sin, so long as they are ministering from the book and not from their opinion, right? So long as they're passing to you to thus say the Lord, we want to have ears as the congregation said, the Lord said it, that settles it, right? The Lord said it's in the book, right? This is how I follow Jesus. And the kind of congregation that says, well, let me put myself in a place where I can be instructed in these things. Let me not be a lone ranger Christian, but but let me instead play this as a team sport. Let me connect with other Christians who can teach me something from their own Christian experience and from the word about how to follow Jesus more faithfully. And let me not just be a recipient. Let me be a giver in that too. Let, Let me give what the Lord has given me to help others along the road, right? And let me not only follow examples, but let me set examples of of pure speech, conduct, love, faith, all the things that we see here, purity. So your job is to come along with your pastors in this kind of ministry. Now, I think that's worth double-clicking on because when you read the sort of surveys of pastors and why pastors leave the ministry, and we don't have this problem here, praise God. So it's not me kind of trying to, on the sly, you know, spank anybody. Right? It's not that. But when you read the surveys of why pastors leave the ministry, one of the, one of the biggest factors in their decision to leave is the people won't follow. The people won't follow. Something like 60% of pastors, 65% of pastors who leave say part of the reason why is because the people wouldn't follow. Now. I think that's one of the ways you can tell the difference between a true church and a congregation of reprobates. Because in a true church, we know the Savior's voice and we follow him. That's a mark of being a Christian. But reprobates harden their hearts against the word, refuse to believe the word and to follow the word, even when it's right there in black and white, right? We, we are not that kind of church. And we should pray that the Lord would keep us from ever becoming that kind of church where we are hardened against God's word in any measure. And not just as a church, but individually. We should pray for one another and for ourselves that our hearts are not hardened to the point that we won't heed a command, receive teaching, and follow an example. Amen? So that's his personal ministry. Now Paul moves on in verse 13 to his public ministry. Notice what he says there. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So once again, we get three things that are meant to mark Timothy's public ministry, and three things that even today are meant to mark a pastor's or an elder's public ministry, right? He says, until I come, we say until Jesus comes, right? Devote yourself. So be committed to, be be, be firmly committed to three things in the public assembly. Notice now, the public reading of scripture, public exhortation, and public teaching. So read, and that word exhortation is really close to one of the Greek words for preaching. So reading, preaching, and there it is again, teaching, right? So now, again, remember the context. He's in this church with all this confusion going on. And and as we said last week, 
Paul doesn't give him some new, clever, sexy thing to try out, right? He doesn't write him with a list of experiments. Paul takes him back to what what Christians have historically called the ordinary means of grace, right? These are the ordinary ways in which God's grace comes to us, is mediated to us, is through his word and the ministry of his word. And and there are other places where the scripture commands Christians to do things in their assembly. But now notice, almost every time the scripture is talking about the pastor's role, it's the ministry of the word. In Acts chapter 6, when there's a problem with the widows and um, they call on the apostles to solve the problem, the apostles said this. Their reasoning in part was, listen, it's not good for us to leave prayer and the ministry of the word. And so these deacon-like figures are raised up to take care of those practical needs so that the apostles would continue in the ministry of the word and prayer. And here with Timothy, with all that's going on in this church, Paul does not call him to leave the ministry of the word, to start various kinds of programs and other things. He says, no, double down. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to preaching. Now, those are three things very much related. So the public reading of scripture is pretty obvious, isn't it? Open the Bible and read it. Read it to the congregation. I realize that it it sometimes can feel a little bit funny to become, to be adults and to have somebody reading to you. We associate that with like grade school, like elementary school, right? Kindergarten or something. You know, we sit on the mat, sit Indian style. Most of us can't sit like that no more, cross-legged. You know, sit down, cross-legged, be quiet, put your listening ears on and, and the teacher will read a story. If we're not careful, we'll become, we begin to think of that as a little bit sort of infantile. But keep in mind, in the first century, most people did not have a Bible. Actually, nobody had a Bible, right? Uh, like personalized the way we do. And, and most people weren't literate. I couldn't read. And so the way the faith was meant to be passed on was through the ear gate. Not, not through the eye gate of reading, but through the ear gate of hearing. And if they were going to hear the scripture, someone had to read it to them, right? And so reading and hearing, you know, have always been a vital part of the Christian faith. So when we have our services, we try to make sure there's some public reading of Scripture. So this morning, we were at 1 Kings chapter 12. But not just that, we read the Scripture on the call to worship. Dennis read the Scripture in the assurance of pardon. Sometimes in the praise team, they'll be in between a song, and they'll transition into songs by reading the Scripture or setting up a song by reading of the Scripture. We, we want this to be a reading and, and hearing heavy experience because that's how the faith was meant to be passed on. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. So don't tune out when the Bible's being read. Click in. That's how faith is passed on. It's by the hearing of God's word, right? We're not just filling the time. We're actually doing the things that God commands. This is the worship that he finds acceptable, the public reading of his word, because in his word is his voice. God is speaking to us through the word. Now, the reading of the word alone is great, but probably not sufficient for growing disciples and shepherding a church the way God would want us to. That's why the preaching is important. So not only is the word read, but the word read is then exhorted. It's preached. There's someone who takes the word of God, explains its meaning, and applies it to God's people and calls God people, God's people in some way to respond to it. The exhortation. 
And they're persons who have, I, I love that he used that word exhortation because they're persons who God has given sort of gifts of exhortation to, right? So when I hear Colin preach, Colin preaches with such exhortatory force. This calls us up into things, right? Just stirs us up. Come on, church, let's go, right? And you'd be like ready to take, well, not the capital. People tried that. You'd be ready. <laughs> you'd be ready. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Too soon? <laughs> the hearing's still going on? You'd be ready to take a mountain. You'd be ready to take a mountain. Yeah, a mountain for the Lord, right? <laughs> Laughing's part of worship too, y'all. Joy of the Lord, right? So you hear Colin preach and you're like ready to go. Let's go. Let's go, right? So that exhortation is important. We need that. We spend our week burning gas. It's exhortation that helps fill the tank, right? We go through the whole week just burning gas, giving out energy, sort of filling ourselves running low. And, 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 and it's important for us to realize that because sometimes we wake up Sunday morning and the tank's near empty and our first thought is I shouldn't go to church. This is the gas station. You better come here before you run out of gas. Right? So come, gather with God's people, be refueled, be refilled through the reading of the word and the preaching of the word, the exhortation of the word, right? So that we can drive another week and keep doing this until Jesus comes. And then there's that teaching again also, that systematic instruction in how to apply. That could be Sunday school, that could be small groups, that could be any number of things, but that's to take place even here when we gather on a Sunday morning. Right. And we can do this not just to preach. I know we're talking about Timothy's job description, but again, this is there's a there's a congregational responsibility here, too. Right. Not only to receive these things, but to participate in these things. So it's cool after the service to talk about the Redskins or the commanders losing another game. That's that's going to happen. Right. And, and, and it's OK to, to talk after the service to t- tell people how shocked you are that Cooper Rush is leading the Cowboys to 4-0 sort of record, right? He'll be happy to hear that. Look at it. That's OK to talk about that. But, beloved, don't spend your best energy on that. You know, ask each other, you know, what, what, did, what did the Lord say to you in the sermon? What, what, what one or two things do you want to hold on to from God's word? Or, or what has God been teaching you about himself, you know, through the weeks? Or, or what, what aspect of God's character do you want to understand better? Do you want to treasure more? Right? Let's, let's make sure our conversations are spiritual conversations because this is the best place for them to happen. They're less likely to happen in almost every other place we go. Right? Unless you work with a lot of Christians and, and in a Christian organization, chances are your coworkers aren't coming to you tomorrow and say, hey, what did the preacher preach about yesterday? They're not. Right. And, and they don't blush at all in talking about all the things that actually make you burn your gas. So with each other, we need to stir one another up in love and good deeds. We need to have a conspiracy of teaching each other God's word and holding on to God's word and not letting the enemy pluck it from our hearts. Right. And so Timothy publicly is to attend to this. These three things he's to attend to the reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And this is connected to verse 14, where Paul reminds him for a second time about his calling. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. 
Now, how to understand this, the, the commentators like the debate, their different sort of views on what was actually happening here. Paul doesn't explicitly say what the gift is. But I think if we're reading it in context, I think the gift is connected to the speech gifts of the pastoral ministry, right? And this gift, he's not to neglect it, he's to use it, he's to apply it. And that's what the spiritual gifts are for. They're for the edification of the whole body, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, right? And so he's to use this gift, not let it get dusty, not neglect it, not put it aside because somebody's looking down on him because he's young or some other thing. He's to command and exhort and teach and preach and do all these things knowing that he didn't thrust himself into this office, but a whole council of elders, leaders of a local church, laid hands on him, ordained him to this office, called him to this office. And when they did so, there was some kind of prophetic utterance that happened, right? That there was by the means of prophecy, this gift was identified and Timothy was called and affirmed uh, in this office. It, it, maybe it looked like Acts chapter 13. Remember verses 1 to 3 of Acts chapter 13? Paul and Barnabas are there with a bunch of other leaders uh, in Antioch. They're worshiping. And the Bible says, while they are worshiping, the Spirit spoke to them and said, separate from me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work of the ministry that I've called them to. And they laid hands on them and prayed for them. And thus began the global missionary work of the Christian church. And it looked like that, that they were in a prayer meeting or in an assembly or talking with Timothy about his future. And the spirit just moved among the elders and affirmed among the elders. Yeah, lay hands on this brother, affirm him, commission him to the ministry. And the Holy Spirit was speaking in and through them as he was called to this work. And so Timothy is meant to look back to his calling and to draw from that calling and that prophetic work of the Lord encouragement and strength and confidence to continue in his ministry. It's the second time that Paul has, has done that with Timothy. If you look back over in chapter 1, verse 18, when he's charging Timothy again, as that word command again, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So in Timothy's own perseverance, Paul has looked back to these prophecies and this calling upon him to be in the ministry. And so his public ministry is meant to be sort of undergirded and strengthened by this public call upon his life that he received from the elders of the church. There's nothing quite as strengthening for the minister of the gospel as having a deep and profound sense that they are called to it. And there's maybe little more troubling to the minister of the gospel than when they begin to doubt it. Whole thing gets wobbly when they doubt it. I remember being in uh, a previous church. Forgive me if I've told you all this story, but we got visitors. So <laughs> I remember being in our previous church and uh, having a hard season with the elders. Things were wonderful in the congregation, but we, we just weren't on the same page. We were fighting our way through it. And it seemed like every week there was, there was some battle, some, some disagreement, some, some attack from the enemy or um, something else. And I remember after an elders meeting, I would go home exhausted. 
And uh, it got to the point where my wife and, and my assistant at the time, wonderful sister, going to be with the Lord, Meg Bodden, we, I had elders meetings on Thursdays. They would begin to watch me on Friday mornings. And they could tell how the elders meeting had gone. Right. And I remember going home after one elders meeting, just, just sat, just sat. I go to the, from the house, Krista said, how was the meeting? I kind of grumbled. Uh, just walked on through the house. Went to the bedroom where we had our computer and I sat down and started playing Spider Solitaire. Just wanted to be alone. It, it just, that works on so many levels that is solitaire. Just wanted to be alone. And uh, Christy comes in after a few minutes. She sits down next to me. She sits there for a while. She didn't say anything. After a few minutes, she said, um, what's wrong? I said to her, I said, um, I don't think I'm cut out for this. I said, I think I should call Frank. That was my boss when I was working here in the think tank. I think I should call Frank, see if I can get my job back, just go back to public policy. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm really made for this. She sat there for a few minutes. And y'all know my wife. She's just a really delightful woman. She's just happy. She never meets a stranger. But she has some poker tails. And one of her poker tails is when she started rubbing her chin. That means duck. <laughs> right? she, started, she started rubbing her chin and she just looked at me and she says and these were words of life she says you're wrong you just need to leave yeah I just I kept playing spider solitaire I didn't, I didn't hear the choir tuning on that yeah, I, I gotta be honest I just said um, I don't want to talk no more <laughs> And I think the Lord used that moment to save my ministry because he was reminding me that I was called to this, that the difficulty wasn't any kind of indication of the calling, right? And that sort of remembering the calling would give me strength in the difficulty, right? And so there's, there's little more strengthening than any of our lives than to have the sense that we're called. Right, whatever it is the Lord has called us to. Some he's called to ministry, some he's called to be attorneys, some he's called to be real estate agents, some he's called to be computer programmers, some he's called to be moms at home, some he's called to be moms owning a business. You know, there are many different callings that the Lord would place upon our lives. And there's nothing more assuring than having the sense, I'm doing what the Lord called me to do. For eight years, we've been back in the States and been in D.C. and been in Southeast. And as the Lord is my witness, there hasn't been a day in these eight years where I didn't feel like with great pleasure, I'm doing exactly what the Lord called me to do, where he called me to do it. And amidst all of the things that have been hard about life and ministry and church and the things that we face in the neighborhood day to day, that sense of this is where I'm supposed to be has kept me. It's kept me and continues to keep me. So I pray, beloved, that not only would the pastors have that sense of calling, but also in our various streams of life, our various walks of life, whether we're students or graduates or whatever the case may be, we too would have this sense of calling, and that calling would be strengthening us and rooting us. And if we don't yet know what the Lord has called us to, that's fine. Just pray and ask him to make it clear. Just pray and ask him to make it clear. Pray and ask him to make it clear to others, even if it's not clear to you. And then listen to others. Receive counsel. Know the voice of the Lord as it comes through other brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And let it root you and strengthen you and keep you as you do the things that the Lord has called you to do in that calling. Amen? 
That's his public ministry. Finally, his private ministry. Notice in verses 15 and 16. Apostle Paul says again, for the third time in this chapter, a reference to these things. He says, this time practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And once again, we get three or four kind of um, instructions or commands to Timothy in these two verses as it relates to his private ministry, how he attends to his own private life and walk with the Lord. He says, number one, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. So this kind of practice that he's doing is not sort of, well, you know, I, I went to the gym last month, right? I, I, you know, it's good. I, you know, I ain't been in two months, but I'm going to count that as practice. No, he, he says, no, immerse yourself in this, in this thing. You, you need to be deep fried in this, right? The different levels of frying, right? There's, 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 there's oven fried. That's level one. There's pan fried. That's level two. Then there's deep fry. That's the best level, right? And so he says, deep fry yourself in these things. Immerse yourself in these things. Get in it deeply. Don't, don't just skim it across the top. Don't just be somewhere around it where you get a little heat from it. No, get all the way down in the practices of the ministry. Get all the way down in the practices of the church. Train yourself for godliness and commit yourself to those things that produce godliness. Get in it right? So this is no light vocation. This is, this is no calling. That's, there's no part-time calling. This is, this is no sort of when it's convenient for you calling. Following Jesus is not scheduled according to our convenience. It's a cross we pick up daily, right? It's a dying that we have to do daily, right? So we need to be immersing ourselves in the things of the faith that we might be, notice what he says, making progress, so that your progress may be seen by all. Now, there are two things I take from that little um, purpose clause that have encouraged me in ministry, have shaped my view of ministry. Number one, this means the pastor's life must be acceptable, uh, uh, accessible, excuse me, accessible enough to the sheep that the sheep can discern growth. Right? If, if you don't know me well enough to know whether or not I've grown from last year to this year, then then something's wrong. You're not seeing my life enough. You're not being able to observe me in public ministry enough or something. Something's wrong because pastors should smell like sheep, right? They should be walking among the sheep, living life together with the sheep. So you should come to know something about my weaknesses. You know, for example, some people think it's a weakness that I'm always, you know, saying little snarky things about LeBron. I think it's godly. But anyway, anyway, but if I'm wrong, you should see me make progress, right, over time. That's a silly example, but you, you get the point, right? You, you should see an, 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 something like a stock market chart, right? We're making progress here. So let me I big up my brother. I love, I love my brother, Pastor Dennis. He, he is one of the goodest men. He's one of the goodest men. He is humble and gentle and gracious, and you just feel safe in his hands. You would not know it three Sundays ago, but unless he told you, this brother, he like preaching ain't my gift. 
this ain't my thing. I'll do it. He's <laughs> like, I'll do it. But I'd rather go to the unreached peoples of the world and put my life on the line with the, the gospel, right? He don't, he don't blink at that. But if you've been here for several years and you've watched Dennis preach, oh my goodness, we saw him three weeks ago. It's like, oh, brother, you in your element, man. You are in your element. Now, right now, he's like, no, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> he's blocking all of that out. You know, I don't want to hear that. But he's in his element. I remember the first time he preached, the brother, I thought he was going to sweat himself to death. Brother was just nervous and worked up and anxious. Now, I'll, I'll, almost all of that's coming from his godly desire to get it right and serve you well, et cetera. And you want to talk about somebody who practices and immerses? You should come look through that window onto his room back there. You should, we call it the baby room. You should look back into the baby room and see him back there in his books, books on top of books, in prayer. Sometimes having a whole praise party by himself, right? Not quite by himself, because it'd be so loud, the rest of us have to praise God too. But he'd be praising God, just immersing himself in these things. And I think anybody who's known Dennis for, you know, the last few years and seen him preach, his progress is evident. And that's, that's the way it's meant to be. So, so the first thing I take from this is our lives as pastors should be accessible to you as sheep, just as your lives as sheep should be accessible to us as pastors so we can watch over you. We're going to give an account for your souls one day. Here's the other thing I take from this verse so that your progress may be evident to all. God in his word is not expecting perfectionism of pastors. The very reason we need to make progress is we like you. We put our pants on one leg at a time. We're like you. We're but human beings. We're like you. We've got failures and faults and flaws. We've got battles with sin and temptation. The fact that we're pastors does not exempt us from all the things you got to fight against and all the ways you got to grow, right? It just means we up here up front. And let me tell you now, I know that there is not this congregation, but just take this as an encouragement and a warning. I know that there are congregations who look at their pastors and, and are perfectionistic in their judgment of their pastors. And I know what that does in the heart of a pastor. It makes him pretend and withdraw. Everybody's putting on the show, right? Don't ever be like that. Don't ever settle for ungodliness in a pastor but always give him the same grace that you need to grow in the things of Christ and encourage him in his practice and encourage him in the progress that you see in his spiritual life, right? Just as you would want from your pastor, encouragement for any progress that they see in your life, right? So the church is meant to be a mutual encouragement society. All of us immersing ourselves in these things so that we would make progress in godliness and the things of Christ. So he says here, in your private responsibility, in your private ministry, practice, 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 practice. And then he says, verse, 19, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. So here he's back, as we said in a previous sermon, he's not, he's not encouraging self-care as much as he's encouraging self-watch. Watch your life. Watch your teaching. In a context where people are swerving away from the truth and leaving the faith, you be the one who is inspecting your life, inspecting your heart, inspecting your teaching, making sure that against the plumb line of Scripture, it's straight. You're cutting things straight. You're rightly dividing the word of truth, right? 
And so watch yourself, Timothy, and watch yourself, elders. So when you go over to Acts um, chapter 20-something, where Paul is gathered um, with with the elders, Acts 26 maybe, is gathered together with the elders there in Ephesus. Say again. Thought you were helping me with the chapter. 20, chapter 20. See, be, let people help you. So, Acts chapter 20, when he's gathered, gathered together there with the, the elders in, Ephes- in Ephesus, this same church, they come out to meet him on the way eventually to his death. And Paul admonishes them. And Paul tells them to keep watch on yourselves and over the flock of God, which the Holy, Holy Spirit has made you overseas. Right? This self-watch is critical so that we don't drift. We don't wander. We don't abandon the truth, and we need each other in this watch. So keep a close watch, not a casual watch, not an occasional watch, but a close watch. Now, if that sounds restrictive to you, know that that's your flesh kicking, not the spirit. Having been purchased with Christ's blood and sealed with the spirit, Each person in the Trinity is intimately invested in keeping you and preserving you until the day of Christ. They are never going to suggest to you that a close watch over your life and doctrine is somehow a burden. That's coming from the world of flesh and the devil. All right, so don't, beloved, kick against this as if this is legalism. This is not legalism, this is protection, this is insurance. Don't kick against this as if somebody's trying to control your life. Well, this is God lording over your life, and he's, he is your Lord, right? And, and this is him protecting and preserving us. And so, beloved, joyfully keep a close watch on not only how you live, but also what you believe. And again, those things are intimately connected. Intimately connected. Keep a close watch. Persist in this. Verse 16 persist in this. In other words, keep going. Keep going, beloved. Many, many occasions where somebody's going to say to you, quit. Stop. Don't take all that. Ain't you tired? Ain't you tired of following Jesus? Ain't you tired of saying no to sin? Ain't you tired of waiting on God? Just do it yourself. No, beloved. No, those are the whispers of Satan. Those are the whispers of Satan. Persist in this. Persist in these things. Persist in a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in the practice. Persist, persist, persist in the training uh, of godliness because godliness is of value in all things, both in this life and the life to come. Persist, persist, persist because there's going to be a reward for the persistence. It's going to be a payoff. Notice what he says here is the reward. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. By save here, he does not mean that we add anything to Jesus' work. Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, his perfect life of righteousness, and his resurrection from the grave is sufficient for our salvation. This is why he says it is finished from the cross. Right, And this is why the scripture teaches us if we add anything to Jesus's work for our salvation, for our justification, we are actually participating in a different gospel and the work that Jesus did on the cross is of no benefit to us at all. We have falsified the gospel. So that's not what Paul is saying here. 
Paul is saying in the sense of being preserved and kept, in the sense of continuing in the faith until the end. In that sense, if we remain in the truth, if we remain in the gospel, if we keep a close watch on ourselves, in that sense, we, we are being preserved by God. And in that sense, we are being saved. We're being kept by God. You will save both yourself, pastor, and your hearers. Now, to illustrate this, think of the negative of this, the opposite of this. Think of a pastor who does not persist in self-watch and sound doctrine, who falls morally who forfeits the ministry, who is perhaps made to leave the ministry because of their their sin and their fall. How devastating is that to the church that followed him? I've yet to see a pastor fall and the church not be devastated. Unless, Unless they weaken their conscience by turning grace into a license for sin. I have seen pastors fall spectacularly and then stand up before the congregation on the next Sunday or two Sundays later and say, I just need grace. Well, you do, but you also don't need to be in the ministry, right? You need grace to restore your relationship to Jesus. You need grace maybe to restore your relationship to your family. You need grace to restore your relationship um, to others in the church that you may have sinned against. But I just need grace as a way of saying, accept this thing that I have done and let me continue in the office. No, beloved, that's disobedient. It's disobedient, right? So just think of how devastating that is to congregations and to Christians. Now, the opposite is true, and this is what verse 16 is saying. When you have faith, we have pastors who, by God's grace, are faithful to the teaching of Christianity and faithful to live that out. That, that example before the congregation, which then becomes worth following as a congregation. That teaching, that commanding, that exhorting keeps both the pastor and the people. One of my mentors in the ministry, Mark Dever over at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, I remember the very first Together for the Gospel conference in 2006. We're sitting in the conference, 3,000 men jammed into a room, and um, Pastors are on stage talking about why they're pastors. And uh, it came around to Mark. Mark was moderating this panel and he was asking them, why, why are they doing what they're doing with their lives? Why are they pastors? Why are they seminary presidents? They've given all these answers. And they came around and they didn't ask Mark. And Mark said something at the time, I, I was just months away from my first pastorate. He said it at the time. I thought, that's, that's ridiculous. But he said, he says, I'm not holy enough not to be a pastor. Like, shouldn't be holy enough to be a pastor? He said, I'm not holy enough not to be a pastor. And then he unpacked it. He said, I just find that the, the sort of pressure of the pastoral ministry makes me watch my life and watch my doctrine in ways that I wouldn't if I were doing some other job. Right? Yeah. And when I, when I went into ministry, I was like, oh, that's what it was. My friends from K-Man will tell you, everybody knows everybody in K-Man. And so I'd go to the grocery store as pastor First Baptist, and, and people were like, hey, pastor. People I'd never seen in my life, <laughs> right? Hey, pastor. I didn't, I didn't know from Adam. Hey, pastor. But just being greeted, hey, pastor, by people who obviously know you are pastor, 
and see you in the grocery store, it's like that's sanctified. It's like I, I can't yell at the kids right now, right? I did, you know, the sanctified or, or sitting in the counseling room with people and counseling and praying with them and recognizing, oh man, we need God's grace to work right here. That's sanctifying. You know, I better go home and tell my wife I love her. I, I better go home and shoot the ball with Titus or whatever the case may be. I, I, you know, it's sanctifying. There's, there's grace in it. And so again, whatever is our calling, being in that calling, practicing, practicing that, immersing myself in it, living it publicly, that becomes a gracious, sanctifying pressure that preserves us and keeps us. And having pastors who lead out of that by God's grace has an effect not just for the pastors, but for the whole church. And God means to keep us. I I love what the Lord Jesus says to the Father in prayer. He talks about all the ones that the Father has given him, and none of them have been lost, except the son of perdition. Beloved, that includes you and me if we're in Christ. The Father has given you to the Son as a bride. And all of us together being the bride of Christ are being kept by the Spirit. And none of us are meant to be lost. None of us are lost, but we will be kept until the end. You see, the good news of the gospel, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, the good news of Christianity is not just that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's wonderful news. All of your sins have been poured out on him and he has been judged for all of your sins and my sins, that's wonderful news. But it wouldn't be good news if after that we had to somehow maintain perfection. No, it's all of your sins, past, present, and future have been nailed to the cross. And so therefore, we are not guilty of those things anymore because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And and the good news doesn't stop there. He's raised from the grave and he sends his spirit into the world who lives in us and who seals us and who will keep us until the day that God promised when his son would return again and gather his church. The good news includes that God is going to keep you. It's not going to toss you away. Sometimes people wonder, can I live this Christian life? Well, no and yes. Not in your own strength, but through Christ who strengthens you. And so if you would not be alone in the world and you would be sure of heaven, then confess your sins to God. Put your faith in Jesus. Call upon him to save you from the judgment to come and call upon him to keep you until he brings you safely to glory. The whole church and the Christian ministry is designed for that, to persist until we see him and share his glory. So if you're a member of this church, plug in like that. If you need a church, come take this journey with us. If you're not yet a Christian, become one right now. Put your faith in Jesus. Call upon his name and so be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the ministry that you have ordained. It's one that we can often take for granted. It's 
one that we can often resent. Sometimes, Lord, we can fail to see the value of it. It seems so ordinary. But we praise you that you take the ordinary means of grace, like preaching and reading scripture, and you use it, O oh Lord, to do supernatural things in us and through us, to raise us from death to life through faith in Jesus Christ, to sanctify us by your word that we would be set apart for you, to preserve us, O oh Lord, by the practice of these things until you come and we see you face to face and seeing you, we are transformed into your glory. We thank you that all of this supernatural abundance, all of this good life comes through these ordinary means. And we pray that you make us a people who would always be devoted to the ordinary means of grace, be devoted to your word in all the ways that it comes to us, reading, exhortation, teaching, and that we would enjoy this conspiracy of, of gossiping the gospel to each other. We're speaking of Jesus and what he has done and is doing and of encouraging each other to look with hope to the day of his coming. So Lord, we pray, bless us in this way, strengthen us in this way, feed us in this way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.